Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our last lesson, we dealt with what appeared to be a very broad sketch of the remainder of the tribulation. The holy city was trampled underfoot by the Antichrist's followers for 42 months, and we saw the rise of two witnesses for God who will prophesy clothed in sackcloth, which has always been a symbol of mourning and repentance for the Jewish people. It was only when their God-given message had been delivered and they'd finished their testimony that the beast or the Antichrist was able to attack and kill them. The Antichrist's followers from around the world celebrated the prophet's deaths, but their celebration was short-lived for after three and a half days, the Lord raised the two witnesses to life again. As God called them heavenward, their enemies watched in terror as a severe earthquake toppled a tenth of the city, killing 7,000 people. And we saw two very opposite reactions to all of these things. The nations were angry at the coming of God's wrath, while all of heaven rejoiced as the Lord's reigning presence began to be felt on the earth. Today, as we look at chapter 12, which is still part of the aside or interlude between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpets that began in chapter 11, in our first uh, verses of chapter 12, we're going to learn of three different entities around whom the heavenly battle has always revolved. A woman, the male child that she bore, and a great fiery red dragon. Now, remember that this section of God's revelation to John is really showing us earthly events from a heavenly perspective. So past and future events are telescoped together in order to give us the backstory concerning God's plan and the enemy's work over the ages. Let's first read the text in Revelation 12 verses 1 through 6. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Before we dissect the text, it is important for us to notice that John only uses the word sign twice in the description of these three entities. In verse 1, he refers to a great and wondrous sign that related to a woman. And in verse 3, he speaks of another sign regarding an enormous red dragon. The Greek word for sign, simeon, is also used in scripture to denote a symbolic person 
object or event that has a far deeper meaning. So, two of these three entities John describes, the woman and the dragon, point to something beyond a literal female and a literal creature. They're understood to represent something else. It is important to emphasize, however, that the word sign is not used to describe the male child that the woman bore in verse 5. There, John simply states that the woman gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And from that, we really understand that this male child is a real child. He is not a symbol or an illustration of something different. So with that in mind, let's take a closer look at the text. The first sign consists of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This woman is most commonly understood to be a symbol of the nation of Israel. John sees that woman associated with God's people Israel here in verse 1 and says she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Who did the woman Israel bring forth? Well, ultimately, she brought forth the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the center point of all history and the culmination of God's great plan of redemption. But there is yet another sign involved in the outworking of this drama. Look at what John is shown now in verse 3. Enter the dragon. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. So an additional sign or symbol emerged on the heavenly stage as an enormous red dragon appeared. Some translations refer to him as a fiery red dragon, and later in verse 9, John will reveal him to be that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. This dragon has seven heads, each with a crown, which can be seen to symbolize his complete authority over the kingdoms of this world. Interestingly, some think that each of these seven heads represents a kingdom through which Satan has worked in his mission to thwart the plans of God and to destroy God's people over the course of history. In that scenario, the kingdoms represented by the first six heads would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, all of which oppressed the Jewish people. The seventh head would then represent the kingdom of the Antichrist, the final agent of Satan to oppose God's people. In either case, however, this dragon has some form of authority over mankind. He also has ten horns on his head. Note what this enormous red dragon does in verse 4. With a flick of his tail, he sweeps a third of the stars from the heavens and flings them down to the earth. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus linked the symbol of stars to angels. And so it seems clear here that this is a reference to the number of angels who joined Satan in his rebellion against God and who fell with him to the earth where they now 
serve as his demons. The dragon has long been watching Israel, and as the woman prepared to give birth to her son, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the dragon closed in, hoping to devour the Christ child as soon as he was born and thus subvert the plans of God. Satan's mission has always been to destroy the anointed one, the Messiah, in order to prevent the redemption of mankind. You will remember, though, the story of the wise men and the star. Luke tells us that they followed it to Jerusalem, knowing that the star was a sign that an important king had been born. After getting more information from the Jewish leadership, they then followed the star to Bethlehem in search of the promised descendant of David, who they were told would be born there. The Roman-appointed ruler of Judea at that time was Herod the Great, and when he heard from these wise men that a new king had been born recently in the region of Bethlehem, he immediately sent out his men to murder all of the male children under the age of two in that area to guarantee that the threat to his own authority would be eliminated. The woman child is clearly identified as Christ here in verse 5. It says she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The first thing we learn about this child is that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter or with a rod of iron. And that comes from Psalm 2, where it speaks of God's Messiah, his anointed one, whom he promised would have all authority. This passage from Psalm 2 is written as if the Messiah is quoting God, his father, and he says, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This clearly establishes that the child born of her is Christ the Messiah, the one who will rule everyone and everything. And then John says that her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This refers to Christ's ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1 after he'd risen from the dead. Now, you may wonder why John's vision immediately leaps from the birth of Christ to his ascension, with no mention of his earthly ministry that happened in between those events. It really has to do with the purpose behind this part of the vision. Remember, this interlude takes us behind the scenes, so to speak, to show us the heavenly perspective. So not every earthly event is mentioned. In fact, John's focus throughout Revelation is not on Christ the man or even Christ the obedient servant of God. From the very first chapter, John is revealing Christ as the exalted Lord of all, the one worthy to open the scroll and to come, the one who is coming in glory to reign. 
The picture here in Revelation 12 is about the dragon's hatred of the Messiah and his ongoing battle against him and the people from whom he would come. But isn't it comforting and reassuring that John's vision also shows the father's protection of his son from all of the unfavorable powers that continually warred against him and also shows the ultimate victory that will be his. In verse 6, the vision begins to shift, this time looking toward the halfway point of the tribulation at which the abomination that causes desolation is erected in Jerusalem and the Jews flee the promised land. It says, The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. It isn't the first time that God has protected his people by hiding them away. Remember that God warned Joseph in a dream to take Mary and the child Christ into the wilderness where they waited in Egypt for the wrath of Herod to subside. Additionally, we know from the church historian Eusebius that after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, many Jewish Christians fled into the mountains where God miraculously took care of them. God has always protected his people throughout the past, but John is speaking here of the Jewish people in the future, in the time right before Christ's second coming. The important points to notice in verse 6 is the identity of who is hidden, the woman, or in other words, the Jewish people, and the length of time that they're hidden away, 1,260 days, which you will recall is a period of three and a half years, half of the seven-year period spoken of by the prophet Daniel. We know little about the place that she has taken, except that it is a place prepared for her by God. You see, God always goes before his people to take care of them. We'll see more details about this flight later. But as the woman escapes, John turns his attention to the increasing war in the heavenly realms in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. In the final days before Christ's return, the war with Satan and his forces will intensify. The opponents are named here as Michael and his angels versus the dragon and his angels. It was in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 that God revealed to the prophet that the archangel Michael was the guardian of Israel and that he often battled in the heavenlies on their behalf. And here we see him in action again. The battle occurs in heaven and verse 8 seems to imply that the dragon and his forces will try to take the fighting into the very presence of God. But John perceives that they will not be strong enough and will lose any ground that they gain. The battle ends when once more the dragon is hurled to the earth. And John makes it clear in verse 9 that the great dragon of whom he speaks is the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray.
We saw earlier in the book of Job that Satan, the accuser, was able to find his way into God's presence in order to slander and to defame God's beloved people. He has that limited access even now, but it seems that at this point in Revelation, he is finally excluded from all access to God and is able to accuse God's people no more. We see the result of this victory in Revelation 12 verses 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So John hears a voice from heaven declaring that salvation has indeed come. Christ's authority and his kingdom are now revealed. Satan has been cast down and those who have overcome him can rejoice. Who exactly are these overcomers mentioned in verse 11 and what do they do? 1 John chapter 5 verse 5 asks and answers that question for us. He first tells us in 1 John 5 4 that it is our faith that overcomes the world. But faith in what or whom? John writes in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The overcomers in Revelation are those who have believed in Christ, who have kept the faith, and who have not allowed the dragon to defeat them. They overcame the enemy in these three ways, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by not fearing death. Jesus' blood is our first line of defense against the enemy. His life poured out for us on the cross, defeated sin and death. His finished work redeems us and delivers us from the kingdom of darkness. Satan has no claim on those who belong to the risen, victorious Lord. But we have a part to play in overcoming as well. The word of our testimony is how we demonstrate Christ's transforming power in our lives. Each of us has a story to tell of God's mercy and power, and these are things against which the enemy has no defense. Though people may be able to debate points of scripture, they cannot debate your personal testimony. But our testimony goes beyond what we say. It's also how we live, how we show devotion to Christ in the choices that we make. It encompasses all of our lives, our words and our deeds. We also overcome the enemy by our willingness to face death for Christ. To many people, dying for Christ might seem the ultimate defeat. But if you think about it, martyrdom really demonstrates the conquest of Satan. In being faithful to death, the martyr proves that Satan has been unable to seduce him or to change his mind. 
Would it surprise you to know that more people have died for their faith in our lifetimes than in any other period in human history? We may not be called to literally lay down our lives for Christ, but there is truth in the idea that every time we choose to suffer or to do the right thing rather than to be disloyal to the Lord, every time we decide to die to self and live for Christ, we defeat Satan and his power in our lives. The next time you hear Satan whisper condemnation in your ear, remind him of the blood of Jesus that enables you to stand blameless before God. The next time you have an opportunity to speak about your faith or to make a choice to be faithful to God's word instead of giving in to the culture of the day, know that Satan is defeated and his purposes are driven back in the lives of those around you as they see you live for Christ. The next time you contemplate the future and what we may face before he returns, we need to think about our loyalty to Christ. Are we willing to live in accordance with Christ's command to his church in Revelation 2.10, to be faithful to death or not? These are questions we have to prayerfully consider before the test comes. We too can be overcomers in our day and in our time and in our situation, as we learn to depend on Christ in us, the hope of glory. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Always know what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, because of the dragon's defeat, the overcomers, those who belong to heaven, can rejoice. But woe to those who do not belong to Jesus. Other translations of the text here makes it plain by declaring woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for great trouble has come. Satan is filled with fury at this point because he knows that his time is short and that his judgment is rapidly approaching. And so in a final attempt to strike back at God, Satan attacks Israel one more time. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Here we see a more detailed account of the escape of Israel we were told of earlier. The fact that she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach is another way of measuring three and a half years, where a time equals one year, times would be two years and a half a time six months. Many wonder about this reference to a great eagle in the text, but God himself is revealed several times in Scripture in this way. For example, when God met Moses at Mount Sinai after the Exodus, he told him to remind the people of Israel how he cared for them, saying, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt.'" 
and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There's a real Exodus-like feel to this passage in Revelation, though, over and above God's reference to the eagle wings. Historically, the symbol of the Egyptian pharaohs was the serpent. God sent plagues upon the Egyptians that, far from being random in nature, directly challenged their false gods in a similar way to the judgments we see against those who follow the Antichrist of Revelation. In Moses' time, Israel was set free from her bondage and carried on the wings of an eagle to God. Then, as she fled, Pharaoh's army pursued her, only to be destroyed by water when the Red Sea closed upon them. So what similarities do we see here in Revelation 12, verse 15? Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. It seems that the serpent who inspired Pharaoh so long ago sends a flood of sorts against the people of God, perhaps to do to them what God had done to the Egyptian army so long before. Some have speculated that the flood John saw was in fact a depiction of a great wave of soldiers that pursue Israel in an actual battle. As with so much of John's vision, we can't be sure, but we can be certain God protects his people in every time and in every situation. Once again, Satan's assault on Israel fails, but he doesn't give up. He turns his attention elsewhere. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony about Jesus. Infuriated at his inability to destroy the Jewish people, who now evidently follow their Messiah, the dragon decides to attack the rest of her offspring, who not only obey God's commandments, but who also hold to the testimony about Jesus. In other words, Satan turns his attention to other believers who have come to faith in Christ. Notice that those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ are the woman Israel's offspring, which is possibly why some theologians believe that most of the tribulation evangelism is carried out by Jewish Christians. If there's one thing for sure, it is that Satan has consistently hated both Jew and Christian alike because of their connection to the Messiah. He hates all who obey God's commandments and who hold to the testimony about Jesus. So far in chapter 12, we've seen the woman Israel and her son, the Messiah, and we've also seen that the fiery red dragon, Satan, is a liar and a murderer. Would it surprise you to know that he's also a counterfeiter? In fact, he copies almost everything God has and does. 
for God's Messiah, there is the devil's counterfeit, the Antichrist. The woman Israel we saw this week belongs to God, but in Revelation 17, we will meet a woman who belongs to Satan, who is known as the mother of prostitutes. God has a mark for his people, and Satan will have a mark for his people, also known as the mark of the beast. Scripture reveals the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in the weeks to come we will see that there is an unholy trinity as well. Satan is not God's equal. We cannot be confused into thinking that he is the bad force equal to God's good force. At most, Satan is the great counterfeiter, the faker, the copier, the pretender. But to learn more about that, you'll have to come back again next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.